<clears throat> Frank Baum's uh, famous book, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, there's a section that reads like this, and he says, why didn't you walk around the hole, asked the tin woodsman. I don't know enough, replied the scarecrow, cheerfully. My head is stuffed with straw, you know, and that is why I'm going to Oz to ask him for some brains. Oh, I see, said the tin woodsman, but after all, brains are not the best things in the world. Have you any, inquired the scarecrow. No, my head's quite empty, answered the woodsman, but once I had brains and a heart also, and so having tried them both, I should much rather have a heart. All the same, said the scarecrow, I shall ask for brains instead of a heart, for a fool would not know what to do with a heart if he had one. I shall take a heart, returned the tin woodsman, for brains do not make one happy, and happiness is the best thing in the world, end quote. Empty brains, <clears throat> happy hearts. As you hear this, I want you to ask yourself <clears throat> the question, who are you most like today? Are you more like the tin woodsman? Or are you more like the scarecrow? Because here in this brief snippet from this famous book, there, there seems to be a separation between your mind and, and your heart, between intellect and emotion or feelings. And when it comes to Christianity and when it comes to our faith, some of us are like the Tin Woodsman, right? We, we appreciate a little more heart. Uh, we lean a little bit more towards the emotional or the experiential, and that kind of drives our, our faith. Um, we like the word passion a lot, right? But the problem sometimes can be is that we also might lack some grounding um, in our basic knowledge and understanding of God that we say we love and we worship. On the other hand, others of us, we're, 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 more, we're more like the scarecrow. Uh, we appreciate a little more brain, right? We lean more on the intellectual side. We may know a lot of stuff uh, in our heads about God and about the Bible and about Jesus Christ, but the problem for sometimes for some of us who are like this is that we may lack a little bit of emotional intelligence that kind of expresses itself, not only in feelings and, and passion, but also in action and in words and in thoughts. And so there's this dichotomy that sometimes we, we struggle with. And I don't know what you think you are or how, what you lie on, what, what end of the spectrum you think you're lying on, but the thing is, when you look at the Bible, you don't really see this kind of dichotomy between heart and mind. In fact, in Mark chapter 12, Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with what? All your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and your, all your strength. That a spiritual person is someone who's not just emotional or experiential, nor is he just purely intellectual, all head knowledge, but no expression in life, but he's both. He's both. And for the Apostle Paul, right knowledge, okay, and right understanding of God ought to produce a right expression in your life, whether that's action, obedience, or whether that's feeling, or whether that's even emotion. Uh, J.I. Packer, he put it this way. He said, theology, which is basically a right understanding of God, is for doxology, right living for God. And they go together uh, for the Apostle Paul here in our passage as well. One of the reasons we are looking at 1 Corinthians is because there are points of contact with what's going on here in the Church of Corinth and also what's going on in our world and in our lives. Corinth was, relatively speaking, <clears throat> someone like New York City. It, it was a very cosmopolitan city at this time. And as such, its surrounding culture, uh, with its many various and diverse ways of thinking, it heavily weighed in and influenced the, the lives of the Christians there. 
And some of that created some division and conflict, even within their own church here in Corinth. And that's why Paul's writing part of this letter. Paul shows us in our passage today how right thinking, or what he calls wisdom, is important in our living for him, is important in our experiencing him, and it's also important in our enjoying of him. And so in this passage, it divides basically into two sections, two sections each part uh, with three verses, and both parts begin with a word of exhortation. Uh, there's an exhortation in verse 18, let no one deceive himself, and then three verses. And then there's a second exhortation in verse 21, uh, let no one boast in men in another three verses. And so what we're going to do today is we're just going to look at the first part. And next week, we'll look at the second part. We're going to look today at verse 18 in this exhortation. Paul says here, let me read it again for you. He says this, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, and they are futile. <clears throat> Paul here in verse 18 says this to the church. Let no man deceive himself. It's written here in the present tense. It's really saying, stop continuing to deceive yourself. And the deception here and the deceiving here, I think he's referring primarily to an intellectual kind of deception. And then how we think, and how we think, a self-deception in how we think. Um, I'll give you an example. I don't know if, you, if you're exercising these days or you know, trying to keep yourself healthy, whether you're running outside or doing some kind of exercise or even playing some kind of you know, sport, hopefully not a team sport, but some kind of sport. Um, and you know that as you're doing some of these things, uh, I remember like uh, as I was more into running, uh, as you're running, for example, you have a picture of what you think you look like as you're doing it, don't you? And oftentimes when I'm running, I picture myself like an Olympic marathoner, right? With the right form and, you know, I look really good. That's how I picture myself. When in fact, I'm just jogging. And uh, that if you were to videotape me, I actually look like a grandmother, right? I actually look like my grandma trying to run and, and it's not very pretty. And it's pretty bad, actually. And so in my mind, the way I think about myself, the way I perceive myself is different from the reality of what others perceive of me. Right. And I think that's what we th that's what Paul's trying to say here, that we all have a tendency, a way of thinking that is oftentimes skewed or sometimes warped or even distorted. That even from our own vantage point, we, we misread ourselves. Sometimes we often think of ourselves more highly than we really ought to. And this is what part of being a sinner means, uh, that as long as you're still a sinner, there will always be a blind spot in your life that you won't be able to see, but others around you might be able to point out. It's easy to point out things in others and to see things in others, but when it comes to ourselves, we're often blind. Uh, we're often self-deceived. And I think this is, in a general sense, the problem for Corinth. Because when you look here at verse 18, Paul says this, Let no one deceive himself if anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age. Anyone among you who thinks they are wise in this age. Here's the deception. It's what Paul calls the wisdom of this age. And you can basically translate that phrase, the wisdom of this age, to simply the thinking of their culture the thinking of their culture, right? Apparently, if you remember, 
the culture here and the people of Corinth, they prized this rhetoric. They, they prized certain philosophies and certain thoughts of their day. And the result was in this church that that was influencing their faith. And they were trying to syncretize the, what, what Paul says, the wisdom of the world and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so on the one hand, this church, they wanted Jesus, right? But they also wanted a socially acceptable Jesus. They wanted to make Jesus fit the tastes and the preferences of the thinking of their own culture and even of their own lifestyle. And I think that's a point of contact for even many of us today living in our own culture. A lot of things we question today about the Bible, uh, there are a lot of things we do question and we wonder and um, how we understand the world. And oftentimes when you look at the Bible, sometimes we think like this, you know what, no, nobody really thinks like this in the Bible anymore, right? Nobody does that anymore. You learn something about the Bible and what God says, you know, we should be or how we should live or what we should do. And, and we think, well, you know, this is, this seems kind of uh, out, outdated, the Bible, you know, no one really does that anymore. In fact, to say some of the things that the Bible says in our world today might even be politically incorrect. And it even might be, in some cases, socially unacceptable, socially unacceptable. And so the way we process this in our culture is this, that when you come to the Bible, you oftentimes say this, that the Bible, well, of course, is like this because it has its own culture. It's an outdated, old and ancient culture, and it's culturally biased in what it writes, right? And so we, we, let, we make an evaluation like this, but we assume at the same time as we do this kind of evaluation, we assume that we are the more objective ones. Right? We assume that we're more illuminated, we're more modern, we're more educated, or more woke, as our own culture would say. And we tend to think that, therefore, we're a little more objective when it comes to looking at the Bible and looking at Christianity. And so the issue now, then, we think is this. It's objectivity versus bias, right? It's the biases of the Bible versus our objectivity. And I want to challenge that way of thinking. Is it that simple, right? When you say culture, what culture are we thinking about? For example, if you lived in the South rather than in the East Coast, how would that affect the way you think about current issues and thinking today, right? If, you live from the, if, from, if you're from the West Coast and you move to the East Coast, how would that affect the way you process things and what's going on today and how you live today, right? And the challenge I want to make is this. We all have cultural biases. We all have cultural biases as well. Biases that inform our view of the world and what it is and how it should be. And so when we come to the Bible or when we come to Christianity, it's not objectivity versus bias, as if we're the objective ones and the Bible is only culturally biased, but rather it's actually worldview versus worldview. Worldview versus worldview, our worldview and the biblical worldview. And there are core values in each of these worldviews. And oftentimes what you find in the Bible is that these core values of these two worldviews are antithetical to one another. They clash with one another at many points. Now, don't get me wrong. There are a lot of things about Christianity and our culture that, that really jive together even today. But here's the thing. If you're a Christian today, if you've never conflicted, right, if you've never clashed with your surrounding culture and the world that you live in today, then sometimes you might have to question whether or not you've really understood or you're really living the Christianity of the Bible. And as you see here, Paul arguing, he argues again and again and again, especially in the opening section of 1 Corinthians. Here's his point. 
when you start to accommodate the message of the cross to the mood of your culture, you begin losing the gospel and you are deceiving yourself. And this is what he's saying here. Don't deceive yourself, right? Be careful how you think. Be careful how you process what's going on around you, what's the world around you, how that influences you, and what the Bible says we are and what we should do, right? And why is that? Why is that? Well, here's why not. Because Paul says in our passage that the wisdom of the world is folly with God. It's folly with God. Now, let me be very clear here. Uh, when we're saying wisdom here, we're not saying, uh, you know, wisdom is, for example, in the area of knowing how to, for example, build something properly, right? Or knowing how to uh, handle or manage your finances or navigate things in, in the corporate world out there. You know, I'm always glad when somebody knows what they're doing, for example, when they fixed my car, or they know what they're doing when they need to take care of something very practical and they do the procedures well and properly. That's a practical knowledge that many of you are gifted, that you have that kind of practical wisdom. But that's not what Paul is talking about here, okay? That's not what he's talking about. When he says wisdom here, he's thinking in relationship to the principles of things like salvation, the knowledge of God, and the principles of Christian life. That's what he's dealing with. And so what he's saying here is this, that in a nutshell, the world's metrics are different. They're different as we learned before. Okay? Uh, God doesn't always value what the world values. Think about this. The wisdom of God is found in the broken body of a man on a cross, nailed between two criminals, and then says, hey, this is the only savior for sinners. And it says... That's what it is. And the world looks at that and says, you're joking, right? You gotta be kidding. This is the God that came down. This is supposed, that's supposed to be your hope and your joy and your peace. A man dying on a cross. I mean, that's an utter joke for many people. We want power, right? We want political solutions. We want self-help strategies. We want practical wisdom. And so Paul responds to that, and he says in verses 19, and he quotes the scripture, he quotes the Old Testament from the book of Job, chapter 15, and then from Psalm 94, he says in verse 11, he catches the wise in their craftiness. The Lord knows the thoughts of those of the wise, and they are futile. They are futile. And here's what Paul is doing. I, I think he's trying to humble the Corinthian church, and I think he does this by addressing a kind of pride. Any kind of pride can get in the way of being a Christian. But the pride that he's talking about here is intellectual pride. And, you know, for example, you know, if you're in a situation where you, you begin trying to show someone what you think Christianity teaches or what the Bible teaches about anything practical in life, and, and then you get a response that says, well, maybe, but this is what I personally believe, or this is what my opinion is, you know, and that's fine and good. But if you ever think about it, if this is really the word of God, and then you're saying, well, this is what I believe, and it's like coming to the creator of the universe and say, God, well, I know that's what you say, but this is what I think. Let me tell you what I think. And there's nothing wrong with questions, okay? There's nothing wrong with being an intellectual, but there is nothing as devastating as intellectual pride. Pride is always divisive. And those with intellectual pride, sometimes the only way they get ego satisfaction is that they have a different view from everybody else because that's what intellectual pride always does. It always has to take the other side. 
And that lies their identity. Intellectual pride, it, if you have intellectual pride, you just can't keep silent and just admire. It always has to talk and criticize. If you have intellectual pride, it can't just have its opinions contradicted. It always has to be right, or it can never admit that it's wrong. And no matter how ridiculous the thing is, it always finds some way to justify what it does. Intellectual pride is always exclusive in some ways and always looks down the nose at somebody else. And this is an issue for the Christians as well as non-Christians alike. And it was an issue in the church that caused its divisions. And so Paul here is asking the church here in Corinth, I know you're bright. I know you've got your own opinions. I know you know some practical things in terms of how the, way, the, the world works. But is this God's word? Is this or is this not God's word? And are you wiser than God? The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, he says in verse 11, and they are futile. They are futile. That's what he's trying to tell this church here. And he's bringing them to kind of humility. So what do you do here? What do you do? What does Paul tell them to do if we're in this kind of situation? And here's what Paul tells them to do. Paul challenges them to do something that's actually very difficult for many of us, and certainly it's very humbling. In verse 18, he says this, If anyone among you thinks he is wise, let him become a fool so that he may become wise. Let him become a fool so that he may become wise. Now, what, what does that mean? You remember foolishness? Paul's already said this. The church's message was pretty foolish. The message of the cross sounds foolish. God on the cross is foolishness in the world's eyes, right? Then he says, secondly, that its members, the church's members are foolish. Not many were wise, right? Not many were noble. Uh, they were, in fact, foolish on the lower end of the spectrum in terms of society. And then he says in our passage, or in, in our previous passages, that the church ministers are foolish, that Paul himself didn't really sound that impressive to the culture around him. He wasn't, you know, that smooth uh, as, as others people, that others were around him. And so you've got a foolish message with foolish members and foolish ministers. And so the question is, why would anyone want to be a Christian? It'd be pretty foolish, wouldn't it? And yet Paul emphatically over and again responds that it's on these kinds of things that God rests his blessings through these things that he worked not only for his glory, but for the good of his people. Friends, if you're really a Christian today, don't be surprised if you're going to be ridiculed for your faith in the world, because it does sound foolish in many ways. You know, my uncle, I have an uncle who lives in Los Angeles and, um, you know, He's not a Christian, and he never was. In fact, he hates Christianity, and doesn't really like the fact, or he didn't like the fact that I became a pastor. And I, I, you know, I asked him once, you know, why, why do you like, not like the church, or not like Christianity? And, and this is what he, he straight up told me. He said, here's why. The church is full of morons, right? The church is a bunch of morons. They're just full of morons, right? They're just full of idiots. I just don't like the church. Uh, that, that's, that's, that's what he said. Um, what's ironic now is that he has a daughter now who's actually in seminary. Right? So I, I, I don't know how that happened. But uh, that's what he said. There are morons in the church. And if you think about this, and if I thought when I thought about this, it's true. There are morons in the church. There are morons in the church. And what Paul here is saying in our passage in this verse here in verse 18, he says to this church, it's pretty humbling. He says, take a proper view to yourself and realize that when it's all said and done, 
You're a moron. You're a moron in terms of spiritual truth, right? Now, I'm not trying to be mean here, okay? But when you look at this verse, let him become a fool that he may become wise. The word fool here in the Greek is the word morose. And morose is the root word for our English word, moron. So literally, this is a Bible word here. He says, God, Paul says, let him become a moron, a fool, that he may become wise, right? He may become wise. What's Paul saying? He's not saying be stupid for God, okay? That's not what he's saying. But here's the thing. If we realize that at least to some degree, that we are all a product of our own culture, our own upbringing, maybe the social norms and the thinking of our own current societies. And yet we want to think and we want to live more consistently like a Christian, that we want to uh, receive God's blessing, that we want to see God working in our life and in the life of others. What he's saying when he says, become a fool so that you may become wise is this. He's saying this, sometimes we need to make a paradigm shift a paradigm shift from a personal worldview that might be more influenced by people, society, and culture, and shift it to a worldview that's more influenced by God and his word. To change our thinking, to embrace what looks like foolishness to the world, but is actually wisdom to God. To do what verse 18 tells us to do, to become a fool, at least in the eyes of the world, in order that we might become wise in the eyes of God, to completely change our values in terms of what we think, to embrace the wisdom of God that's bound up with this man named Jesus, the only Savior for sinners, Jesus Christ, Him crucified and risen for you. And, and this way, uh, this, it may not be the most popular way of thinking, it may not even be the most practical way of thinking, and certainly not the most easiest way of living. But Paul is saying it is the only way of knowing, living, and being a person who put their faith in a God who sounds pretty foolish to many of us. A God who became man. Foolish. A creator who would die for creatures. That's foolish. A shepherd who would give his life for his sheep. A king who would give up riches for his servants. That's ridiculous. A savior who would just let himself be crucified on a cross for people like us, for sinners. That sounds foolish to the world, but Paul says this is the wisdom and the grace of God. And as Paul has already told us in chapter 1, verse 25, he says this, the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. That's what Paul means when he says, become a fool in the eyes of the world in order that you may become wise in the eyes of God. He's saying, make that paradigm shift where you are and where you're living. He's saying, as a person of faith, sometimes we need to check our worldview and the core values by which we're living. We need to make sure that, that we're thinking and we're evaluating and we're discerning in a way that's governed not just by our desires or our opinions or our political agendas, whether liberal or conservative, or even the ever-changing viewpoints of our current culture, but rather let your view of the world be governed by God in Jesus Christ, 
who is our wisdom, Paul says, who does not change like the shifting shadows, James chapter 1 says, but who is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, Hebrews 13 says. This is what it means to be a disciple, okay? To be a disciple, even intellectually, as we think about things. And Paul then says to this church, as at the beginning of ways to overcome their divisions, their issues, he says to them, do not be deceived. Do not be self-deceived, okay? Understand the wisdom of God and understand that oftentimes our wisdom in the world can be folly, but the wisdom of God is life to us. So I hope and I pray that uh, we don't become just more passionate Christians or more fruitful and active Christians, but we also become more thoughtful Christians as we live, not just in the church, but we live in the world and we evaluate what's going on, not only in our homes, but also in our towns, in our country and, and how we process all of these things. Let your thinking also begin by using God and Jesus Christ as a core foundation before anything else. Let's be faithful to the Lord in every way, in Christ's name. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for your grace. We thank you, Lord, that you're a God who continues to challenge us, but also calls upon us to give you everything that we 